Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We're going to continue this morning in this gospel and our study of the Christmas story according to, to Luke. We're setting some foundations and getting some good important background information that Luke provides to us as it relates to the purpose of his writing and and some information then related to the beginning of the narrative, which is important. We want to get, get this correct and glean from it the importance of the emphasis that Luke makes um, in this first chapter, in particular up through verse 25, which we'll be looking at hopefully today. I'm not going to promise we'll get there, and you know me well enough that we won't. So, But there's, there's food at the end, so hey, you know, how, how good is that, you know? It, can't get much better. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this great day. Help us to do what we've just been called to do. Good Christian men, good Christian ladies, rejoice. Rejoice over what? The fact that you have come to dwell among us. And by so doing, gave us the opportunity and secured for us our salvation. We are grateful for that. Our, great, our salvation is great indeed. And we trust, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts and minds today the importance of the message, that, that we will have a conviction and a fascination, as did Luke with this message, so much so that he wanted to pen it down for his dear friend, Theophilus, and, and to make certain that he got it right, and that it was supported, and that it was factual, and that it pointed to what Jesus has done. We praise you, Lord, that this book has been preserved for us through all of these ages, considering all that has taken place in the course of human history. Here we sit today in Beloit, Ohio, some 2,000 years later, and we have it. Thank you for that. Thank you through the Holy Spirit that these words have been kept and given to us. May our hearts and minds be open to receive them today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at this important gospel and we began by looking at the first chapter and the first four verses. Um, let's read through verse 25 and make some comments about what we talked about a little bit last week and continue to move then into the passage before us today. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside of the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him to the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, 
how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Well, last week we considered these opening verses, and we considered three important principles. One, that Luke had a fascination with the, mess, with the, with the life of Christ and, and the things that he did, so much so that he wanted to make certain that he got as much as he could down through verified accounts provided to him by eyewitnesses. We talked about the significance of that this fascination is important, and it speaks to the idea that we too, as the redeemed of Christ, ought to also be fascinated with the message of the gospel, the life of Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ, something that is so critically important and often de-emphasized. We saw Luke's passion. His passion is marked with the idea of making certain that his account is accurate. He wanted to make certain that Theophilus, apparently a young believer, a benefactor, of Luke's understood the things that undergirded what he was being taught about salvation, about the need for a Savior, and how Jesus Christ is equipped and was able to fulfill all that is required to carry out his role as Savior. And we've considered Luke's intention, that is to write an orderly account, not only for Theophilus, but one that would be secured and preserved through the ages for all of us, and today in your lap, open in front of you, is indeed this very account. I, I just love that idea. I know I've said that before, but I, every time I look at this and think about that, in understanding history and how difficult it is to keep things together, and some of you are historians out there, and even studying near history is difficult to keep straight at times. But here we have this preserved for us some 2,000 years later. That's, that's wonderful. That's amazing. That's significant. And are you not entertained? <laughs> Well, you ought to be. That should be intriguing to you. And that ought to speak to the significance of what is in front of you. The purpose and the plan of God in keeping His Word is something that is oftentimes, I think, overlooked. This is evident by the fact that in many churches today around the nation, the Bible will not even be open. They're going to rock the cradle. They're going to dress up like elves and goofy things. And the word of God will be ignored. How awful that is. Luke would not be pleased. Well, we know that Luke then begins this story with a sketch of the remnant church. In essence, the Christmas story begins with a small group of Old Testament believers who are, who are clinging to Yahweh and waiting for his kingdom. I, I love the idea of this. There is so much to unpackage here. We see in verse 5 this important historical setting given to us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. That's there for a reason. And it gives us this backdrop against which this story then begins to unfold for us. Something that should not be lost upon us. We have from this small remnant of faithful believers, we have Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna. And against the backdrop of this maniacal leader, these people are a faithful remnant. Now, we, we know that they're faithful because of how they're identified in verse 6, what is attributed to them in the context of their, of their Christian life, which would have been very counter to what was the norm of that day, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees came into existence around 170-ish B.C. and began to corrupt 
what God had ordained that Judaism would look like. And by the time Christ comes, Judaism is nothing like what the Old Testament would ordain it to be. And I would submit to you today that what is offered to us as Judaism is not what the Old Testament would communicate to us. It has been grossly corrupted. So it's against that backdrop, too, that this story begins to take place. Now let's think about this for a moment because I want to make certain that the picture is painted in such a way that it gives us a a vivid portrayal of the darkness of the times that 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 are used as the backdrop. When Luke tells me in verse 5, in the days of Herod, automatically I need to begin to think about, well, what was that like? What were the days of Herod like? What was going on in the days of Herod? Well, what was Herod like? Well, he was a cruel and maniacal king appointed by Rome to rule over Judea. Ironically, he was known as a great builder, and he even restored Jerusalem's temple to its former grandeur and glory and adorned Judean cities to match the lavish splendor of Rome. He built many buildings, many places, many things. But suspicion and paranoia haunted him. So much so, think about this for a moment, so you get the picture, so much so that he suspected his wife and her family of betrayal, so he had them all killed. And he later did the same to several of his own sons, whom he also suspected of plotting to overthrow him, so he had them killed. Later, we read in Matthew chapter 2, that he had all two-year-old boys and younger near the area of Bethlehem and within Bethlehem killed in an effort to kill Christ. And through the dream and the warnings provided, Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, ultimately leading to fulfillment of multiple prophecies, in particular one from Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. So we understand who Herod is. In fact, Herod's so bad that his own body didn't like him. He was plagued with ill health, constant fevers, whole body itching, intestinal pain, tumors of the feet, abdominal inflammation, and gangrene. What a pleasant chap. Some commentators have speculated that this was simply the manifestation of his internal wickedness perhaps. Nonetheless, he was indefinite, a definitely evil and wicked man. So, I want you to think about this for a minute. So, here we have this historical setting, but, but Luke is concerned about a, a small group of faithful believers who are set against this background of this wicked leader, a dark world. The Romans rule the world as it would have been understood, at least from the perspective of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and others. It would appear to have been a hopeless time, a dark time. Wars were constant, disease was rampant, life was hard. We've talked about that. Things were difficult and challenging for people. And against the darkness of this setting, this story begins, and then the focus becomes initially on these faithful people, a picture of the church, if you will, faithfully following God's word, even though others are not. The Pharisees are dominant. They're taking things in the wrong direction, emphasizing the wrong things. But here we have this picture of of Zacharias, who is a priest, We know that from the passage that we're looking at here in verse 5. We know that he's married to Elizabeth. Again, Luke is concerned about with verifiable facts to make certain that we understand that the story of Jesus, the account of Jesus, is true. These people are real. Jesus is real. Herod was real. We can confirm that through history. And these people lived in that context. Now, We would think that these people would be, in the context of human history, utterly inconsequential, and I would dare say they're not mentioned in history books. Here it is. We understand this period of history. But here the Lord delights in the strange focus of the gospel story. It has a backdrop in secular history, and the attention falls primarily then on this small remnant church, the servants, 
God has kept and who call on His name. And this is typical of Luke as you look at his gospel to make some prominent ruler provide the background and then focus on someone who at first glance would seem utterly inconsequential. Now, what's significant about this is that when, when Christ in his first advent comes, he comes in this context against a backdrop that seems hopeless, lost, where is the church in the world? It's nowhere. It's not in Japan. It's not in Russia. It's not in Brazil. It's not in Tahiti. It's not in Australia. It's not in India. It's not in Africa. It's not in Germany. It's not in England. It's not in the United States. Where is it? In this small, remote hill country of Judea, amongst a small, insignificant group of people, who are still looking to the Messiah and have understood what's significant about this that they've understood what the, what the, what the form of Judea, Judaism was meant to portray, the idea that the, the law speaks to the heart, that righteousness is dis, disassociated from themselves but lies in someone else. This is what verse 6 communicates to us. So what's significant about that? It's significant in this. We, we see the same thing for the church today and in the future, do we not? The first advent is set against this backdrop, and so too will his second coming. We've been studying Revelation chapter 11, and what we find in Revelation chapter 11 is that we have the picture of the church, we have the picture of the world that's trampling the church under its feet. Today we studied about the two witnesses, the picture of the church and its proclamation of the gospel. What we will find as we work through the balance of chapter 11 is that at some point in time in the future, the existence of the church is going to be marginalized and almost extinguished to the point where there's only just a small remnant, a small remnant of faithful believers. It's interesting to me that we can draw that contrast and how God works in that setting and in that way, demonstrating that he is ultimately in control and that when all seems lost, when all seems hopeless, he will do the unimaginable, the imponderable, the seemingly impossible will take place. That's significant for us. The setting out of this, this historical context is so important. And what that says to you and me is that as, as he did in the beginning here in this first advent, so too he will in his second advent. He has promised that he is going to come again, and he will. It was prophesied that he would come, and he did. And these faithful few believed that and kept their focus on that. We have here then the beginning of this church age, this gospel age, if you will, that's so significant to a better understanding of the book of Revelation. We have this first advent and the coming second advent, and we have the setting that is so significant for us. Dark, dire, wicked, seemingly hopeless, a fledgling remnant of the church. And here comes Jesus. I love it. And so as we look at this passage, we consider some things that are important for us to keep in mind about what we're being told here. We do have this sobering picture of the people of God. And these are the facts that matter the most. Yes, Herod is the king, but he doesn't spend much time about that. He spends more time talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we understand then that this small remnant are, are marked out and identifiable because of what their life characterizes. They were both righteous before God. We see that in verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God. That's what we're told. Then Luke details for us how that right standing plays out. They were going what? They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But we have to keep in mind, the latter part of verse 6 is not the cause of the right standing that we read in the first part of verse 6, but it's the fruit or result of it. Keep that in mind. Their right standing, their justification, which is communicated in verse 6, 
led them to what? Right living. That's significant. This, this earmarks them as distinct from what would have been the norm for the Jews of that age, having bought into the legalism and self-justification and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Most were not thinking this way, but there is this small remnant that are identified here in the context of this particular setting. And so keep that in mind. This verse does not stand for the proposition, as some might argue, that you can have a works-based righteousness and that Zacharias and Elizabeth are an example of that. No. Their righteousness is in the sight of God. We understand that God does not recognize or otherwise accept man's works. So they, like Abraham, believed. They had faith. They understood the purpose and the point of God's law. Zacharias was a priest. He understood that the law spoke to the issues of the heart. It wasn't just some temporal or, or external, rather, expression, but the law really drove down into the heart. And so they would have understood that, and as such, they're identified as such in this way. We have the root, then we have the fruit. And don't forget that. If you don't have a root, there ain't no fruit. For all you farmers out there, we live in a farming community, and so this picture, this metaphor makes sense to us. There's no root, there's no fruit, but they had a root, and that root was in something other than themselves, and because of that, they then lived out the reality of it. Not to become more righteous, they couldn't become more righteous, but because... They love the Lord. So what's significant about this and the, the marvelous thing about it, you barely step out of the Old Testament and here, already you run into the people of God. The importance of the people of God, the faithful people of God. They're still there, small in number, but they're there. And consider all that has happened. Israel has come through the Babylonian exile, through the Persian domination, through the ravages of Antiochus Epiphanes, and now they are under the thumb of the Romans. But God still has a faithful people. And here they are. Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see a glorious stubbornness on the part of God here to preserve through thick and thin a people who hold on to his word. And that ought to be an encouragement to us. You know, we, we look at the book of Revelation, we look at other things in the Bible, and we say, is it going to come to pass? Now, now, Dare I say, will we too commit the sin of Zechariah? Will we not believe the evidence and testimony of God's word? Now, Gabriel isn't going to come and talk to you. And I know a lot of people out there think that can happen, but it doesn't happen. We have the full revealed word of God. We have something even better than what Gabriel could say to us. Can you believe that? Doesn't the Bible tell us that angels are, what, envious of us in some ways? the mystery of salvation, all that? But are we, like Zacharias, not believing the evidence before us? That's Zacharias' problem. He's a priest. He ought to know, right? He knows the stories. He knows everything that's happened. He should not have been shocked by what Gabriel was saying to him. His shock was more disbelief. It wasn't that he was just surprised. He didn't believe him. It's interesting because later on, Gabriel appears to Mary, and Mary's response is somewhat similar to Zacharias, but she doesn't become mute. I think the reason for that is because of one, heart issues at play, but also because there was an expectation that he would know he's a priest. He's a priest. He's been preaching this stuff, reading this stuff, talking about it, doing it. Well, in any event... I like the idea that there is a preservation of the, of, of the people of God. You and I have to keep sight of that. What's Christmas about? It's about hope. It's about joy. It's about peace. And as you and I look at a story like this, we can say to ourselves, he is going to come back. He, he came back for these people. He came to them in the darkest of times when all seemed lost, when Herod was the king, when he was doing evil and wicked things and killing little boys. He came. 
And if he came then, he's going to come again, even when all seems lost. So I'm going to rest confidently. I, too, want to be found faithful like Elizabeth and Zacharias and Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, waiting for the return of the Lord with great expectation and hope. We, we miss the point. Are we trusting faithfully in the word of God? Does it mean to us what it says to us? Do we know that he is going to return? Are we confident that he is coming again? We ought to be. We must be. Because he's going to. Just as he did against the backdrop of all that seemed lost, he is going to come again. And so for you and me, we take great comfort from the picture that's being painted here. And for you and me, we don't want to have a certain response. Now, we find some other things out about that are quite fascinating. In verse 7, we're told about the, the physical temporal plight. Not only are they a remnant of a small, insignificant group of righteous people, the, this 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 infant stage of the church, if you will, but they had no child. Now, now, to not have a child back then was a big, big deal. It was a stigma. Look at verse 25. How do we know this? Elizabeth even makes the comment herself. Take away my disgrace among men. It was a disgraceful thing for a woman to not have a child. That was a big deal. And there was a cultural, societal stigma that attached. The implication being that in all likelihood, in, 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 in some circles, she would have been ostracized, mocked, ridiculed, made fun of, disassociated from others who had children. Not only that, it's because she's barren. So we have a... a physiological problem. It's impossible for her to have a child physiologically. Her body doesn't work the way that God intended it or designed it, and so she cannot have a child. And that's significant. That part of the story for us needs to be recognized. Not only is she barren, but she's old. The implication being that she's beyond, even if she could have children, that she's beyond the age at which you would have children or could have children. Some commentators have, her age is not given to us. Some commentators speculate that she was somewhere perhaps between 60, 70, maybe even 80 years old at this point. The idea being is that she's physically impossible to have children because she's barren and she's too old. It all seems like there's no way she's going to have a kid. No way. This is not happening. So verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So let's talk about that for a minute. What's going on? Well, frankly, what was going on is that there were too many priests. There were 24 divisions of the Levitical order. He was in the Abijah division. You got a lot of priests within each division. Each one wanted to do something. There's only so many opportunities to do these particular things, in particular burn incense, which was a big deal. That's a significant part of the rituals that are going on in the temple. So it was quite an honor to get to do these things, quite a significant. It's likely he'd never done it before, just because statistically it's not something that would be happening very often, just because of the numbers. And so this is significant in the story, and it shows that God is in control. Now, you may say, no, Pastor John, it was just because he was lucky. Oh, really? Look at Proverbs. This must be your lucky day, huh? You remember the Little Rascals episode when the little boy was asked to use the word isthmus in a sentence? And he says what? This must be my lucky day. Many of you are saying, huh, what? What's the little rascals? Well, ask Dell. <laughs> yeah, so Proverbs 16.33. So this was, was this all by luck? Did Zacharias get chosen by luck? Well, no, we know that. And this is why Christians ought to be reticent to say things about luck. What does Proverbs 16.33 tell me? 
The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the good luck. Is that what it says? No, it's every decision is from the Lord. Yeah. Who's in charge of the dice? God. As R.C. Sproul said, there are no maverick molecules. No maverick molecules. So does this mean that you ought to pray before you go to Las Vegas? No, it does not. (laughs) Well, maybe you should pray before you go to Las Vegas, and maybe you won't go then. I don't know. No, I'm just teasing. So we see then that the Lord's hand is all over this story. So you have a setting in which it appears that it's going to be impossible for him to be in the context or place where he ultimately ends up, and that the, the Lord is in charge of that. Because the Lord is in charge of everything. He sovereignly guides and directs, and we find it the same to be the case here. And so verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside of the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord, this is Gabriel, who we find out later, appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now, it's interesting, too, because the picture of the altar of incense is is symbolically in Scripture one of prayer. We find that in Revelation chapter um, uh, 7 and 8 and, and other passages that the picture of incense is the prayers, as the incense is being burnt, they see the smoke rising up and we, we see the prayers going up. That's the picture of it. And so we'll also find out that, that Zacharias at one point in time, he and Elizabeth were people of prayer. They had been praying. They say that the child was an answer to their prayer. So there's a, there's a picture there that's being painted. So the angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, automatically, you would think that that would register with Zacharias and say, okay, I know from other accounts in the Scripture that when an angel appears, it's a big deal. So, so newsflash to the preacher, the priest. He ought to know automatically that something big is about to happen. I dare say that he had never seen Gabriel before. And so there he stood. That's significant. It says in verse 12 that Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. No, that's, that's okay. That, that would be normal, I think. I mean, if I saw Gabriel, I would be afraid. <laughs> but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. So there's words of comfort, and Zacharias, of course, needs to be hearing it, but he ultimately doesn't. Look what it says. For your petition has been heard. What? Now? Are you serious? Uh, what? I'm, I'm, like, I'm like 70 years old. I'm like on the verge of retiring from the Levitical order, and you're going to give me a kid? Some of you have experienced this, I think. <laughs> Shock. How'd that happen? I don't know. (laughs) Look what it says. You've got to be careful what you pray for. I've said this before. Lord, give me patience. Oh, no, don't ever do that. (laughs) You'll be amazed at what you get. Then we have prayers. Now, you just don't know when prayers are going to be answered. Now, this is a good lesson for us. Think about this for a minute. Think about the idea of Zacharias and Elizabeth praying in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, probably stopping at that point because they know at that point it's not going to happen and they're getting too old. So they, they stop, but God still remembers. Revelation chapter 5 paints a picture of the fact that our prayers are a treasure to Christ and they're kept in a golden bowl. They're never lost. Do you know that? They're never lost. And so here we have this picture of Zacharias and Elizabeth who have in all likelihood stopped praying at that point, yet God remembers your prayers. They're a treasure to him, a treasure. Well, what a picture this is for us. What significance there is to this, to us. Think of this. Everything appears in this story to be absolutely hopeless. Herod is the king. 
Elizabeth and Zacharias are old. They don't have any kids. She's barren. He rarely gets to do anything as a priest because there's too many priests. And then all of a sudden, in one day, he gets to offer the incense offering, and a Gabriel appears to him. <laughs> Who does that? God. God does that. When all seems lost, God is at work. Don't forget this. And so we see the petition were heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now, there's a lot to be said about this. And, and again, this is the reason that, 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 that Gabriel reacts the way that he does to Zacharias. We need, can't lose sight of this. Zacharias is a priest. He's reading the Old Testament in the synagogue. That would have been part of his priestly duties. He is familiar with the stories. And think of all the things that he would have been familiar with. How about Sarah from Genesis 18, who was 90 years old and couldn't have a child, except that she did in Genesis 21, because the promise trumped genetics. Then we have Rebecca, Isaac's wife, who was barren for the first 20 years of their marriage until their twins, Esau and Jacob, were born in Genesis 25. How about Rachel? She was childless until at long last Joseph was born in Genesis 30. How about in Judges 13, we meet the wife of Manoah. Who did she have? And she was barren, and her son was named who? Samson. One could even include Ruth, who had no children by a first marriage. Would her marriage to Boaz prove otherwise? Obed is a proof it was otherwise. How about Hannah? How can we forget Hannah? Had a horrid emotional roller coaster over her barrenness. We know this from 1 Samuel 1 until Yahweh gave her Samuel. Nor should we forget the unnamed woman from Shunem in 2 Kings 4 and her unnamed son. All of which backs up what we see in Luke 1. God tends to begin his finest works in the face of human hopelessness and human weakness. Zacharias should have recalled and ought to have recalled those stories. They would have been fresh in his mind. They would have been part of his psyche in the context of things he would have been thinking about. And so the angel describes then to Zacharias this one that his son would proclaim. It says in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And look what he does. And so in, in Zacharias' mind, he's going to begin to reflect, and should have been reflecting on the, the, the prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah. Because this language fits with what the prophets foretold, especially Isaiah. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He's speaking to Christ, so his son's going to be involved. John, his son, is going to be proclaimed and proclaiming Christ, the prophesied one, the Messiah. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That would have registered with Zacharias. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Those are all the things that, that, that the Messiah was promised to do. And the idea, too, of this phrase about turning the hearts of the children, the fathers to the children, doesn't mean they're going to be better dads. Um, it has uh, the idea of, of the extent of the redemptive work that's at play here um, in regards to this proclaimed message. It should read, the fathers as well as the children will return to the Lord that way, in a more literal Hebrew context. And consider, too, what John has promised to do in the context of his message. He's going to bring joy. He's going to make a difference in the lives of people based upon the message his pointing people to Christ. He's going to turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord, which speaks to the idea that they had so far departed from what God had ordained in the context of Judaism that their hearts were hard and distant. 
And so John would come proclaiming Christ as a forerunner. That's significant. And so what happens here then is that against this backdrop, verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, and this is unbelievable, how will I know this for certain? Well, he's talking to Gabriel. I mean, I'm honestly, <laughs> I mean, what more do you need? It's Gabriel. Um, I, you're an angel. Yeah, but I'm not sure I believe you. Okay. Well, Gabriel gets indignant in a way. I mean, the tone is such. And he would have understood the, the idea of angels. That would not have been a foreign concept to him. Angels were in the Old Testament too. He would have understand that, that dynamic. So he says to the angel, he's talking to him. That says a lot. So he's talking to the angel. Instead of making a proclamation of worship and celebration and praise, it's a question of doubt. It's a question of, of, of um, uh, there's a, the, the word is escaping me, but there's just a, there's a, almost a callous disregard for all the things that he would have known. Zacharias, and this is for us to be reminded of the fact that God has given us so much. You and I even have more than Zacharias had. Think about that for a minute. He's a priest in Levitical order. You realize you have a whole lot more than he ever had? <laughs> You've got the whole story. He didn't. He's kind of in the beginning of it, but he doesn't have the full thing. So the Zacharias says to Gabriel, how will I know this for certain? Really? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, I want you to compare something. Look at verse 63. We have a comparison here of how he, his mind is changed, of course. Uh, it says um, in verse 64, verse 63, and he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John, and they were all astonished. Now look what happens once his mouth is, his tongue is loosed. What does he do? He does what he should have done at the very beginning, right? At once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak what? In praise of God. That should have been his first response. He had learned his lesson, right? The, the lesson had worked. So verse 18, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He knows for certain. He knows the stories that we've recounted. Sarah and Hannah and, and Rachel and Rebecca and Ruth and all of it. He would have known that. So verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Wake up, Zacharias. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Do you think I just dropped in the chat? Do you think I just came by to say hello and get acquainted with you? No, I have come to give you good news. Now, this good news theme is important because we're going to see it later in the Gospel of Luke, right? The angels proclaim what? Good news. This is good news. Why is it good news? It's good news because John, his son, is going to be a prophet who is going to proclaim who? Christ is coming. Prepare yourself. And so, this idea of good news is important, and the idea of paying attention to the Word of God is important. And so, as a consequence... God then uses this opportunity to convince Zacharias that what Gabriel is telling him is the truth. He uses his muteness as a form of assurance, thereby showing to Zacharias that what Gabriel is telling you is true. I'm going to make you mute. You didn't remember, you didn't recall what you should have known as a priest. So I'm going to give you a physical demonstration of the fact that I am at work here. And so you're not going to speak for a long time. That's a hard thing for a preacher not to do. Of course, that would have interfered with his reading, his participation in the priestly duties. They read the word of 
God, the law out loud, did other things, led in prayer, issued benedictions. May his face shine upon you. That was part of it. That would have been part of one of their benedictions. And so, here we have this amazing picture. And so, Zacharias comes out of the temple. He's not able to speak. Speak. If the mute thread is true, so is the promised child that is coming. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. What's taking this guy so long? What happened? Did something go south? Do we need to pull the cord on his ankle? That wouldn't have been the case, but you get the picture. Need some, send some guys in and get him? Nope. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them. So it's like charades, like, you know, He's trying to, I don't know, what's going to happen here? And people, what are you talking about? You can't talk, of course. So he keeps trying to make signs, and perhaps he ultimately wrote something down, as he did later. So he goes back home, and lo and behold, Elizabeth gets pregnant. Wow. The Lord is at work. And so Elizabeth then keeps herself in seclusion for five months. And her response is the right response, in contrast to that of her husband's. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me. Notice the contrast. To do what? To take away my disgrace among men. And so we have this picture then of God working with a small remnant of people against a historical backdrop that is dark and dire, and God is at work. Prayers are being answered. A child is coming to foretell the Messiah, to proclaim him, to prepare the way of the people for him. And we'll find that out, of course, as we work through these passages. So for you and I today, we can look at this and we can have confidence that what God has promised to us will come to pass. You may be praying for years for somebody. You may be praying for one of your own children and their salvation for a family member. And I would say to you not to stop because God hears our prayers. And to not forget what God has told us about himself and to not forget what he has already done. Don't forget Luke chapter 1. When all seems lost, when all seems darkest, when all hope seems to be abandoned, don't forget Luke chapter 1. God is at work. God is at work. And he moves in his own time and in his own way. But he is at work. And don't forget it. Now, he's told us something, hasn't he? He has told us that he is coming again. He is coming again. You better believe it. In Revelation 11, we're told that the church is clothed in sackcloth because of the urgency of the message to the people to whom it's communicating. People are dying and going to hell. There are some of you here today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that if you were to die today without Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you will spend all of eternity in hell? That is what the Bible says. And we as the church mourn over that. And we're concerned about that. And that weighs heavy on our hearts. So I say to you, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. But will you? I say come to him and he will in no wise cast you out. He will not reject you or turn you aside. And the hope of Scripture and the hope of the message of Christmas will be yours. Doesn't mean that you're going to win the lottery or have your best life. Indeed, the Scripture says your life will be challenging, but it will be eternally secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. How good is that? 
That's the Christmas message. And Luke begins to set out the groundwork for us to make certain that we're grasping. Remember the word of God. Remember it. Always remember it. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement from this chapter. Thank you for the beautiful picture it paints of your sovereign control, your presence in the darkest of times, the perfect timing. May you also, as you found Elizabeth and Zacharias and Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, may you find us too faithful, waiting, ready, our wicks trimmed, our, our, our loins girded up, our doors ready to open, the house lit. And in the meantime, give us a burden for the lost. Forgive us for hiding our light. Help us to make it shine forth in this darkness so that people can know Christ and have life eternal in Him. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of celebration. Thank you for all the fine folks who have worked so hard to put together the meal. Thank you for the good food that you've provided to us. We sit down today to a bounty that is provided by you. And we are very grateful for that. So thank you for all of these wonderful blessings. You have been good to us beyond belief. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you're having a meal, uh, of course, and... I want to make certain that you're aware of that and that you please stay. These times of fellowship are important. And um, make your way around the room, talk to people, shake hands, smile at them, and, and make certain that they know that you love them and, and, and get to know them better. We have visitors. You're welcome to stay. I hope that you will and uh, participate in the, in, the, in the festivities this afternoon. So thank you for that. And uh, we'll go from here.